What's happening, ladies and gentlemen? Welcome to Across the Chains. We have one heck of an episode for you today. Bitcoin and Ethereum are showing really bullish price action. Twitter and eToro have partnered up. What is Elon's master plan? FTX relaunch. Is this a clown world we live in? We're going to dive into this and so much more today. Stick around. It's going to be a great show. Emmett, bring us in. Metavault Trade, a decentralized spot and perpetuals exchange. It's a new kind of decentralized exchange on Polygon, designed to provide a large range of trading features and very deep liquidity on many large cap cryptocurrencies. Connect your crypto wallet and start trading in seconds. No KYC needed. Trade top cryptocurrencies with up to 50 times leverage with professional trading features. Or stake MBX and provide liquidity to MBLP, earning real yield. With more than $500 million in trading volume and trusted by more than 8,000 users, Metavault.Trade is the go-to solution for trading. Link in description to get started trading today. Please trade responsibly. Good morning. How you doing, gentlemen? Good morning. Like that opening uh, intro there. MVX is one of my uh, little bets. So uh, oh, very okay. excited to see if they have a commercial now on our show. So yeah, cool. yeah. It's uh, Corval has a, a heck of a ad voice, man. I, like he I came from does. advertising. I'm like, dude, you could be you could be on on uh, audio over you commercials. You knew I am Corvallis in your yeah, ear. Exactly. Yeah, no, he's fantastic. I mean, you, Clay, you know. I mean, we've talked about this. I, I think I think Corval is a star. I really yeah. do. He's got I, star power. It's it's the mustache, man. It's all in the mustache. Uh, Nick Slovaki, how are you guys? Very well. How are you? I'm doing great, man. I'm doing great. It's uh, it's been it's been a fun week. It's been a the Daily Show. If you've been tuning in, has been a you know, it's the first time we've been able to get on and talk about uh, positive things in this space, uh, you know, for a long time now, and that has been uh, a lot of fun. And we have we have been a time because there's. So much to talk about, and I'm excited about the things that we have to discuss today. Uh, for today, and you know, I, I was, I was going back uh, yesterday, saying, when was the last time Bitcoin was this price? Where were we with this show? Uh, with you know, what what were we doing? And it was uh, FTM alerts. It was Phantom Unchained episode 41, uh, which was back in June. And so it has been a long time since we've seen uh, this, you know, this type of market movement and and sort of. Um, Bitcoin above 30K, Ethereum above $2,000. We've got the uh, East Chapella has been a massive success from what we've seen in terms of rollout and functionality. Uh, the CPE read this week was was flat. PPI was down. You know, all of these factors are going to be elements of this episode. We've got a ton to cover. Uh, enough chit chat. Let's get into it. Let's get it kicked off and uh, and let's get rolling. So. Um, I, as I said, you know, I don't think we need to go too far into any price action or anything. We, we all, you know, we can all look at the charts and see what's going on, but a Bitcoin, uh, Bitcoin above 30 K for the first time since June of last year. Um, and we've seen Bitcoin dominance, which broke 48, uh, which is a key sort of resistance level, uh, breakdown below that. And so we've seen some good movements in alts. Uh, and so every, you know, a lot of calls for, for a altcoin, uh, rally and, and all that stuff. I think it's a bit premature. But something to keep an eye on, uh, and so you know, I think we can uh, we can hop into the first topic of the day. Um, like him or hate him, Elon Musk has a plan, and Twitter has basically partnered up with Etoro, and 
has said we're going to be the everything app uh and i'm going to read a quote here that was uh that he said uh two days ago if you're in china you kind of live on wechat it, it does everything it's sort of like twitter plus paypal plus a whole bunch of apps rolled into one with a great interface it's a really excellent app and we don't have anything like that outside of china um and so clearly he has a plan as to where he wants to take twitter and so i want to break down with you guys you know what do you what do you think about this partnership what do you think about you know wh wh where could this head uh in terms of twitter's trajectory growth and and roadmap and so uh i will kick it over to uh to you mark yeah so um you know for those for those people who don't know um i i, I spent a little bit of time in in tokyo and japan i can't remember when this was but not you know maybe four or five years ago and um if you're if you're in that if you're in that part of the world if you're not on, I think it's WeChat or WhatsApp, kind of depending on what country you're in. But basically, those apps are literally your life. You don't exist if you're not on them. And it's, it's right. It's like Facebook, LinkedIn, Amazon, uh, PayPal. Everything in your life is rolled into one app, right? And that's sort of hard for us to conceive of. So when when Elon Musk says he's building the X app, the everything app, app that is what he means. Now... I think this is great, and I think that if anyone can pull this off, it's Elon, and clearly bringing crypto, um, you know, uh, exchanges directly into Twitter is a great thing for our space. Uh, my worry with this, though, is that you know the other thing that happened last week is that Elon got in a spat with Substack, and suddenly links to Substack were um, not allowed on Twitter. And Matt Taibbi even quit over this because Taibbi lives and breathes in the uh, Substack space, um, which you know brought you know, brought about this massive crack in what I call the free speech alliance. So that's not good, but um, but it showed that Elon is willing to um, ban competitive products. So my worry is is that if he you know as he starts building the X app, uh, does he start banning references to MetaMask? Does he start banning competing products on Twitter? Right, he's already shown a proclivity to do that, and the and the one person who's sort of really holding his feet to the fire uh, recently is Lynn Alden, and she posted an absolutely savage takedown of Elon <laughs> Musk. Like I have never seen. Usually she's like a Vulcan, right? She's very sort of even keel, well reasoned, never gets upset. She just went absolutely crazy on him, and yeah. I've never seen a reaction. I saw like that. that. So yeah. Yes. Yeah, I think I, I think to, let me just jump in on this, right? Please. Um, so I don't remember the exact tweet, but it was something around this guy's an idiot. He's a coward. He's a cuck. He doesn't yeah. build anything. Like Mark, I can say whatever I want to. Yeah, like that tweet to me came across as emotional and completely unhinged. To call to say this guy doesn't build anything. And he just copies everyone else and just kind of rode in to being the richest, most famous guy on the planet. Sorry, Lynn Alden, but um, that just streaks, that just screams jealousy to me. Yeah, you can love him or hate him, but to say he doesn't build anything and he just copies everyone and he just got lucky and he's a fraud, like for me, you're just an idiot, in my opinion, when you say that. It, it's completely out of left field. It was very unusual for her, for sure. Emotional. 
It's yeah. it's like, you know, you don't like Trump and you go and say these crazy things or you don't like Biden and you go and say these crazy things. So, you know, I don't have any time for that kind of tweet. Um, the guy is obviously uh, extremely unstable in terms of how he makes decisions, very uh, temperamental, but he finds a way to win. I'm like, I like Elon just because he finds a way to win. But obviously... He has the cap- capability of, of of making some really big mistakes. Um, yeah. So anyway, I just wanted to jump in on the Lid Orton thing. I give her zero credit for that tweet. She's usually pretty smart, but um, you know, she was acting like a twelve-year-old, in my opinion. So I, I, I you know, lens take aside. I, I want to ask you guys. So if you think about the way that that Twitter is headed, um, and and you look at this this uh, in this particular piece of information, so. So, you know, eToro as a platform, um, you know, you can basically get on and and mimic trading strategies of other users. They've got 32 million registered users across Europe, Asia and the United States. So it's a, you know, it's a big platform. Um, And I think that probably their CEO, you know, sees this as a way to reach a mass, mass audience in Twitter. Uh, And if you look at the adoption of cash tags, so Twitter added pricing data for cash tags in December 2022. By the way, it's powered by TradingView. Uh, since the start of 2023, there's been 420 million searches for cash tags with the number of search averaging 4.7 million a day. And so the way that I see this going is not, is not that like Twitter will, at least on its inception of this, this type of, uh, implementation will, will not be the trading hub. It's going to drive you to eToro based on a cash tag, uh, to, to trade crypto, to trade, you know, whatever you'd like. Um, but it does potentially make. Twitter, the financial, like, like, like replacing Yahoo Finance, replacing, you know, being a, a, an additional resource for people that, you know, that could be really, really powerful. So my question to you is, if can Twitter become the, the financial super highway of information because information is so real time? Like, that's where I see the value here. And particularly, we already see it with crypto every day with CT, crypto Twitter. Uh, so what, you know, what is your take on how this evolves is what I want to know. It already is, Clay. It already is the information highway. Um, if you want breaking news on a stock, you, you you dollar sign the ticker in Twitter and you see a real-time update of exactly what's going on. Um, uh, for the majority of people that aren't professional you know, investors and don't have Bloomberg terminals or other services, that's where they get their information. So it's not that this will make it the information superhighway. It already is. And previous management couldn't work out how to make any money out of it. And and what Elon's trying to do, and just look at the things that he's done, eight bucks a month, right? I'd never given a cent to Twitter. I've been using it for a decade. Um, I just paid 300 bucks for three accounts to get the, 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 the membership thing, the verification. That's number one. Number two, um, subscriptions he announced yesterday. That you know, everyone else is making all this money from subscriptions, whether it's Substack or Beehive or all the newsletter platforms, and they all use Twitter to grow their audiences. Twitter never made a cent. And now number three is okay, we've got all of this investing slash gambling activity happening on this platform. It doesn't make a cent from it. Yep. So how do we make any money from it? Now, my wife works at eToro. eToro HQ is a hundred meters from where I live. I didn't she know walks that. to the office and they're super excited and they should be. Um, so j- just to give you an idea how valuable this kind of partnership is to 
something like eToro and its dozens of competitors. Um, these platforms make a fortune from retail traders that are basically out there yoloing a thousand bucks or two thousand dollars or five thousand dollars, right? So it is extremely valuable to acquire a customer. As a result, because it's a very competitive space, they pay extremely aggressive commissions to affiliates to bring in action. If you go to any of, and we, we know that, like, you know, Binance gives you a cut, um, all the crypto exchanges, but this isn't a new crypto thing. It's been going back 20 years. So these exchanges will pay affiliates 800 to $1,000 per customer that right. deposits, right? Yep. Um, and, and, and people have multi-million dollar businesses that all they do is drive customers to these platforms, right? They put reviews online, etc. This is a huge industry. Yeah. So if, 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 if you're uh, Elon and you're like, hmm, okay, how much would they pay me for every customer I send them? Or how much would they pay me for every trade that's initiated from Twitter to these platforms? This guy is going to put all the affiliates out of business because all of those customers are on Twitter. And it's not that they're just on Twitter. That's where they get their information. That's where they try pump their bags. That's where they kind of um, uh, 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 group together and try and, you know, have their discussions, et cetera, et cetera. I think when the GME thing was happening during COVID, mm -hmm. I think Reddit was adding a million users per day, right, to, yeah. to some something like that because everyone was getting in on this discussion on GME. Um, now, imagine you could monetize that action. It's a huge, huge, huge business. There's right. regulatory concerns, That's right? Um, so, so they need to be careful about how they implement it. But if you think about how good a spot that is for Twitter, right, it's going to make a fortune, but then how good a spot it is for eToro, right? eToro doesn't want my action. You know whose action they want? Moonboy735. <laughs> they want that retail flow. So they're going to pay through the nose. There's going to be a bidding war. eToro will be the first, okay? And then Robinhood will put their hand up and say, well, we bid a dollar one. Someone else will bid a dollar two. And, um, you know, there's a difference when you've got a businessman running the business. He just sees around the corner and he goes, hey, I've got this hugely valuable asset. No one's doing anything about it. I'm going to start clipping every ticket, whether it's newsletter subscriptions, trading, et cetera, et cetera. Etc. The danger here is he fucks it up and the SEC comes after him for something because this guy's out there tweeting, you know, I think today he did yeah. Aptos. Like, you can't do that shit if you're now monetizing that audience for other actions. So he might, you know, he might get in trouble with the SEC if the lawyers don't rein in his personal activity. From yep. a business standpoint, he holds all the cards, he's going to make a fortune. Yeah, I mean, he could be his own liability. That is for certain. So, the, uh, the, the, so let's 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 discuss this one one more point, and then I think we we go to the to the next uh, topic. So earlier this week, they announced uh, the the change of the incorporation for Twitter to X Corp. Uh, so merging with a shell company with that name. Uh, I looked at the court filing just to figure out where you know where is it actually uh, incorporated, and it's incorporated in Nevada. So it is a U.S. based entity, uh, and that's I think that's important. And if we think about the iteration of what this could become my when i initially read this i thought okay twitter's going to become a platform where you can actually trade currency on the uh, on you know, on the platform itself it, that doesn't seem to be the case at least initially and so do you think that being based in the us in nevada has any type of you know 
does it pose challenges to ever enter that space? Or is that something that they didn't, you know, maybe Elon doesn't even want to do? Because why would you? I think he does. Well, go ahead, Sabak. Yeah. Go on. Um, I think he does because there's, there's multiple, I mean, when we talk about digital assets onboarding, right, we think about trading. Uh, and but he's in a position where you can bifurcate them where you can do trading and you can route, route it through eToro on like the main on the main stocks or, or main uh, tokens like Bitcoin or ETH. Um, and on the other hand, he can use his incorporation in Nevada to set up some form of gambling for some of the higher risk elements. And you can clip a ticket on the gambling revenue without ever have. So he can then still tweet about Aptos and not care about it because he's not driving trading on it. Uh, if Aptos, if you can only bet with it on 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 the platform, and then, I mean, if we look at some of the other things that we that we're speaking about, sorry, I I I don't want to be rude and jump in earlier, but but um, Mark was talking about like the 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 I guess it's called it a fight that they had with with Substack earlier in, in this week, but this subscription announcement with 10,000, like apparently up to 10,000 characters and long form videos. And like he, part of the reason why the fallout happened with Substack is because it looks like Twitter's going to replace all of them, right? Clay, you also touched on like in the future, you're not going to click on a link and go to eToro. You're going to trade on Twitter. And in the back end, it's going to happen through eToro. Because in terms of like user experience, I don't want to go to Twitter, click on a link, open up a separate eToro app or browser, and then have to log in there right. and do the I trade. Well. I want to do it all in one place. And he's setting up the foundation for that. And I think moving the company's jurisdiction into Nevada allows him to lean into some, I don't know what it is, but everything else seems strategic so there must be a strategic makes me think there must be a strategic reason for him going out there for a number of possible re revenue streams and i think yeah i mean he, he does make mistakes but as we saw with the interview that he had with the bbc reporter if something catches his attention and he hones in on it he's very deliberate and he's very thorough in terms of how he goes after it especially around Key key points, and in that in that instance, the, the the journalist was speaking about hate speech, and he pushed it. He wouldn't let it go because that is just a a a, a small element that he focused on. And maybe you know he, he may fall a bit flat on the wider picture. And I think that might be the the stumbling block is you know they casting the net much wider. How well can they execute on all these elements at the same time? Because it doesn't help if your Twitter experience and your video loading experience and your long form uh, 10,000 character, uh, I guess, blogs are, are amazing, but your trading experience is substandard. Right? It's still going to leave a bit of taste in your mouth as a user. Um, so that will be quite interesting. But sorry, I just condensed no, everything. No, in. that's, that's, that's <laughs> perfect. Perfect context. Absolutely. So, uh, you know, we'll, it remains to be seen how this will be rolled out. It is a very interesting partnership. It's clearly a strategic move. The The Nevada point that you made around gambling was something I hadn't thought of, and that's very, very interesting. Uh, and so, you know, all the, you know, at the end of the day, Elon is, he's pro crypto from, from what I can tell. And so uh, I very much think this is a, a positive for our space. And it's something that, you know, I think could have uh, really 
really positive impacts long term if it is implemented correctly. So let's let's see how it goes uh, and let's move on to uh, the next topic. So uh, quite the week for Ethereum. We've got Ethereum uh, with the Chappella upgrade to uh, basically to if you don't know what the Chappella upgrade is, uh, Ethereum has been staked in validators since 2020. Uh you could not remove that stake. And so the Chappelle upgrade allowed you to remove your your, your validation stake uh, as a, a user, an institution, or what have you. Uh, and there was potentially $34 billion on the table that could be unstaked in Ethereum. And you know, there was obviously both sides of the argument on crypto Twitter for this, you know, for the last few months saying, you know, it's gonna bring the price down X or, or it'll be a positive event. Clearly, we've seen. Uh, Ethereum's, you know, price action respond very, very positively to this. And so, you know, I, I guess I ask you guys, um, you know, do you, do you think that this is, you know, like in a sea of bad news, this is an event that has gone very well. Um, and, and there are a bunch of different sort of longer term, you know, possibilities with, um, with this proof of stake network on Ethereum growing and with liquid straight liquid stake derivatives, you know, really, really catching on. So do you think this is, you know, like what's your take on how well this went? And and to me, this was just a huge positive for crypto overall. Like we needed a a, a solid event like this to happen. And, and this has been a good week. Uh, so interested to hear your take. Yeah, I mean, I think, yeah, I'll just go real quick. Yeah. I Look, uh, crypto is, is has had two kind of bright spots. One is Bitcoin itself uh, during the whole bank crash festivities of, uh, you know, maybe three or four weeks ago, it detached from kind of everything else and shown on its own as a very strong asset. Now we have Ethereum uh, doing doing a similar sort of thing, but in its own fashion uh, via the liquid staking derivatives and the unstaking. Uh, so I, I, you know, I, I think these are separate events, uh, but both major events of the two major coins in the ecosystem. So I, I think it's pretty significant. I think it's, um, you know, this is hopefully a bellwether for all of crypto turning around. I think it might be. I am. Um, so w when things like this happen, look, in order to make money in the markets, you need to kind of try and decode what the humans behind the markets are thinking. And this was a very instructive experience. Everyone's kind of seeing green candles and they're skipping away. Well, what did I think was going to happen? And then what actually happened? So some folks thought that unstaking all this ETH would lead to the price dropping drastically because now those people who couldn't sell their ETH now can sell their ETH and as a result, they would sell their ETH. Um, some other people thought that <clears throat> now that you can unstake your ETH, and withdraw it easily, staking ETH becomes a lot more attractive, so capital inflows should come into that exercise. My base case was that both of those things were true um, and that one would balance out the other. And I think I had a tweet about a week ago saying, this is going to be a nothing burger. There, is no, there isn't going to be a dump because there is sophisticated money, sophisticated money out there that finds the ETH yield attractive and they want to participate. And that should balance out any sell pressure. And that nothing would happen. So I was right on the first part that it wasn't going to dump, but I was wrong on the second part, which is the 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 weight of the people selling was much lower than the weight of the 
of the inflows. And then so I sat down and I thought, okay, so does that make any sense? Like what actually is going on? So who staked their ETH back in the day? I didn't stake any ETH. I, I, I'm not going to lock something up when I don't know when I'm going to get it back. I'm not that kind of investor. So who did stake their ETH? They are individuals that had no problem voluntarily locking up a ton of value, realizing that they weren't going to get it back. A portion of these individuals are in it for ideological purposes, to help secure the network, to help progress DeFi, et cetera, et cetera. So once you start getting into the mindset of that cohort of individuals that locked up their ETH, what happened yesterday starts to make a lot more sense. They had no desire to just take their ETH and sell it. In fact, they probably took their ETH and then they went and you know bought some Lido or some, or some other liquid staking derivative. So that's instructive. We know that um, we can potentially try and quantify how sticky that cohort is. And when other situations that might be analogous to that pop up, you now have more information to make those decisions. Um, and, and what was interesting to me is the capital inflows. Um, and that, to me, is new money staking ETH, right? Um, yep. or, or additional money from the same people. But in any event, there is no doubt that inflows outstrip outflows. At this stage, obviously, this unstaking is a bit of a process and people might be waiting. Naturally, as the price goes up, more people might be willing to sell. So there's a lot of variables, but I certainly learned something about, you know, I, I, I miscalculated slightly just how sticky these original ETH lockers are. And it's quite impressive. Um, I put another tweet out today that for the first time in a long time, I think long ETH, and short whatever altcoins you think aren't going to make it starts to make a lot of sense to me right here because ETH um, now has properties it did not have before. It's just demonstrated over the last 48 hours that sophisticated capital is very willing to, 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 to stake ETH for the yield, which is kind of low. So yeah. you start to put the pieces of the puzzle together. It, it's actually one of the most bullish things I've seen for a while. Yeah, I mean, Nick, you, you raise a great point. Uh, migration to proof of stake chain, um, different types of roll-ups for, for settlement on layer twos for Ethereum, meaning that you, know, you can operate on other chains where gas is not uh, as cumbersome as 2021 trying to use Ethereum. Um, now you can actually use liquid stake derivatives across the ETH ecosystem, layer one or layer two. Like there's been a lot of things, a lot of changes in the last three months that that changed my perspective on the, the, the long-term trajectory of Ethereum uh, as a chain overall. And so totally, uh, absolutely a fantastic point. And, and something that I want to point out here is, so uh, CryptoQuant, uh, which is a service that we use, 60% of, of staked ETH is still underwater. So even at these prices, 60% um, of, of the folks that, that got into um, you know, providing Ethereum for staking are still underwater. So if it's retail, you probably aren't going to sell. You'll move around and do things at DeFi or whatever you, know, whatever you may do. Um, okay. So Mm -hmm. Yeah, I was just, I think the, the part that, that feeds in quite interesting is the, is the timing of the Chappelle upgrade. So do you think that 60% that's underwater would have still stuck around if this happened post-Luna um, collapse, post-3AC collapse, post-FTX blot? This happened way, a month ago the banking sector fell apart right so if you were gonna be like fuck this shit i am like like i we're done 
or where are you going to take your money, right? So now it becomes a point, well, if you're thinking about, well, I had uh, a sort of um, forced to stake for uh, a long period of time and you were thankfully protected from taking out when all the bad stuff happens. Now you get your tokens when like the, the general sentiment is more positive. So in, in terms of the psychology behind it, I think there's more reason to to keep your ETH stake now because like this is the time to be there. Right? If this happened, I, I think that 60% would be a much lower number if this happened in September last year. So when you when you're when you're a developer or you're the Ethereum Foundation and you have a, a roadmap, but it's not concrete. Like it, you know, you can move the goalposts as you see fit. Is that sort of I mean, are you alluding to the fact that you know this the date had changed, at least from my understanding, at least two or three times in terms of pushback, pushback. And and they kind of have come out at the right time to to implement uh this this upgrade well i'm gonna say i'm going to say that the ethereum foundation is uh focused on building a sustainable and suitable blockchain network for the global economy to gradually migrate to i'm not going to speculate whether <laughs> the timing of that has anything to do with wider market factors i'm going to say their focus is on building and not uh, potential narratives so so let's that's that's totally totally fair answer uh we don't need to tinfoil hat the uh, ethereum foundation like on, yeah on the under on the underwater stuff yeah yeah maybe but i don't really put too much stock into things like that yeah. um because if you're underwater why does that make you less likely to sell well, uh, I guess, I guess it depends on your in individual position, no? Yeah, you're, you're just as likely to sell and go and buy something else that has positive price action versus something that has lost you money over the last four. Like, I, I think I, I think that squares out. Uh, I, I don't, you know, everyone quotes it that, you know, these guys are underwater, they're never going to sell. I don't buy it. Um, yeah. They might not, but they're just as likely to sell for other reasons to allocate into some other shit coin. Because now they're FOMO'd, yeah. Because everyone's yeah. making money on whatever, and they're not. So underwater, I don't think it matters. So, so I want to reference Suvaki's second point because I think it's an important one. Uh, you effectively said, you know, is the timing of this advantageous to to not unstake because the market has seemingly turned around for now? We're going to talk about whether that's you know whether we think that's a long term situation or not, but. Um, I, I, where I want to take this is so this is the price of which each made because if we think about this this is a whales game I don't care you know for the for the folks watching the show or any of us who have you know ethereum staked it's not enough that we're going to move the market one way or another even if we did decide to sell but a lot of these folks can uh, but I would argue that probably each of them have their own individual plan as to why they got into ethereum staking the time right the, the timeline and longevity of which they are going to um, you know operate under whatever strategic plan they've created. And so of all of these folks on the screen, nearly all of them are underwater, but I bet they all have, you know, a five, 10 year time horizon as to why they're in this. And the only one that gives me concern is Kraken because Kraken US closed. Uh, and they're, they're, Kraken right now makes up 62% of the exit queue. And that's because they are gonna have to give back whatever stakes ETH was was part of Kraken US. And so, you know, so I guess my, my, my question that I pose to you is, it, it doesn't really matter what the price is if the if the major players are are these large large entities because the, I don't see them exiting one way or another. Mark, yeah, no, I, I I think I agree with you. I I think that I mean Nick made the point earlier that 
a lot of these people are in it for, you know, ideological reasons, partly like they want to, they want to make it happen. And, you know, that's one part. Of course, they want to make money. So, and as you say, they have a much longer time horizon and they're whales. So I, I you know, I, I think Suvlaki brings up a very interesting point. The psychology might've been very different after the Luna collapse. Um, but I don't, I don't think it would be enough to, to make most of them sell. I have to agree with you, Clay, on that. So, yeah, I mean, I also think they're they're enabling products and services for other folks, and so you know they have their own stake, obviously, as validators. But you know, it's it's not a good look if you're going to if you're going to remove your stake Ethereum as validators and then sell uh, as you're enabling other folks to like get into to staking Ethereum on your platform. That that's not a good strategic business decision. So I just don't see that playing a hand here. Um, yeah, and, yeah, please go ahead. Clay, like I agree with you, but it comes down to well, what I mean in 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 the sense of psychology, it's not accept my underwater position or not. It's now when you weigh up that that opportunity cost in terms of in the current market environment, are there better opportunities elsewhere? And if you think about well, right now, I don't really think there are better opportunities out there in the current market that warrant the additional risk that comes with it if you take that out and you go shitcoining, for example, versus keeping it in there. Whereas in, I think that the psychology around that would have been different back then because you would have been more, maybe then you would have been like, I need to get out. Whereas in now it's just like, well, this is the best opportunity for, in terms of if I'm deploying my capital on the network in a not such an active manner, that is a very good place to be because the 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 positive narrative that uh, Mark was mentioning earlier in terms of the merge, uh, the the implementation of Chappelle, like there's a positive narrative around Ethereum, and I guess like general sentiment is long term, price go up. Right, and you you also have you also have a bunch of <clears throat> like institutional money that needs to be deployed like they've raised funds for digital asset investment and in the current environment where you've got hacks all over the place regulatory uncertainty etc etc you've been sitting in stable coins and right now maybe you didn't want to enter a liquid staking derivative position but now you don't have to right um you know take ethos reserve for example if you've been to the site the design's completely different than what the bike masons have done before that looks quite sophisticated what collateral are they are they accepting? Ethereum yeah. and Bitcoin, yeah. right? We, we we spoke to we spoke to Justin yesterday. Suvlaki and I is very focused on this being an institutional grade product. So now that you have this asset that has kind of stood the test of time, right, um, is already being referenced as a commodity by various regulators, and now you can stake it, earn a yield, and you can unstake it. So it just makes it more attractive. Um, it, it really is one of the one of the most bullish things that I've seen um, for, for a while. And and by the way, congratulations to the Ethereum Foundation. It's like you know two or three rollouts in a row that they just got right without skipping a beat. Whether it's the merge or this, you know, I I've been giving them shit for a really long time. I was short Ethereum for the better part of the whole year of 2022, but these guys have got their shit together right now. It, it looks like. Yeah. You raised a great point, and that was actually going to be my final question, and, and you 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 took it from me, which is fantastic because I don't have to pose it. But I, I read uh, yesterday that that MetaMask is actually rolling out an institutional grade um, Ethereum staking platform. Um, if it's anything 
as clunky as MetaMask itself, then I don't know how well it'll do. But the point is that there's lots of big players getting into this game. And so, Mark, or, uh, Nick, I, I absolutely agree with you that this this opens the door to, and, and forget the United States, but there's tons of other players out there with crypto funds who, who are looking for a place for 4 to 5 to 6% returns. And you know, if you include the United States, if the economy gets better and we don't have two-year treasuries giving you know 4.2 percent, then you'll probably see the same thing here uh, domestically as well. So I think that this uh, this is incredibly bullish, and there's you know there's a massive opportunity for capital inflows from from institutions as a result. So anything to add, guys, before we move on? All right. Uh, so talking about things, um, you, you mentioned the Ethereum Foundation doing things really, really well. Talking about uh, a place that didn't do anything well at all, uh, FTX. So we have to we have to go down this road, uh, as painful as it may be. Um, I put out a poll yesterday on on Blockbyte's uh, Twitter, saying if FTX was relaunched, would you ever touch it? Uh, and and about seventy one percent of respondents said either hell no or is this a joke? And so. The sentiment clearly is not uh, not 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 good uh, in terms of the community element of of relaunching FTX, uh, but there's a lot of you know there's a lot of reasons that it could happen, uh, and it's absolutely being floated by John Ray the Third, who is you know who has basically taken over FTX since the collapse, and so you know the FTT token itself has rocketed 100, percent you know basically purely off speculation that that if the exchange does reopen, that token will have some form of utility. Uh, that is you know, if that's probably not where we need to take the, the conversation, but you know, from, from your perspective with, you know, I think, uh, a total of 7.8 billion of assets have been recovered. Uh, and at this point there's a, a balance sheet hole of about 8.9 billion in liabilities. So there's still a hole, uh, and they would still have to raise money if they want to do that. So with all that said, uh, I assume that the creditors are the ones crossing their fingers, hoping that something like this happens because it could be a path to to making them whole. What, where do you let think me, this goes? Let, let me give you a serious answer, right? Now, when you come in as a receiver, like John Ray and you know his team, you mm -hmm. have one mandate, and that is to maxim maximize recovery for creditors. That's it. So yep. you've got this bucket of assets – the brand is an asset, right? So his job is to maximize recovery. And in doing that, selling some of these assets is part of that process. So if you if you if you go back and you have a look at everything he's done and everything he's said, um, if you were trying to sell FTX, what would you do? You would say, this is a really good business, but these seven people fucked it up. This is how they fucked it up. So he's been very methodical about absolutely, um, you know, throwing the kitchen sink at the old management um, to separate the business from, you know, these half a dozen or dozen people that were doing all this crazy shit. Right. At the same time, you would probably say, we're thinking of relaunching this thing. So why would you do that? <clears throat> if you are in the crypto exchange business, right? You might be trying to bid on the assets. Maybe they've got, you know, some tech, maybe, you know, I think the brand is worth, it's not worth zero. It's a liability, 
right? It's worth less than zero. So forget the brand. But I don't know what kind of IP they've got. I don't know what kind of tech they've got. But let's say they have something of value. If you're a competitor, you might want that stuff. So if I'm selling it to you, what would I do to try to get a better price? I'll say, hey, I'm going to compete with you. We're going to relaunch. So I just think these are these are, are very smart, professional people that are trying to maximize the value of the assets. And part of that song and dance is we're probably going to relaunch this thing. Um, no sane business person would relaunch this thing, um, even under a new brand. No one is going to put a dollar of capital on there in terms, you know, the 30% that said yes to your poll play, um, yeah. you know, they're not serious, right? Like 98% of people would not put money on there. And the 2% of money that would put money on there need their head read. So I don't think this thing launches for those reasons, but I understand the the strategy and the tactics of the people leaking this kind of information because that's what you do. Makes yep. sense. Yeah. So, so, uh, Mark, I'm, I'm going to kick it over to you. I pulled up a tweet, <laughs> and if you're listening to this uh, in podcast form, uh, Mark's prediction at 11:52 p.m. I, I assume that to be my time uh, in, in on the East Coast, three hours ahead of him uh, of November 15, 2022, is somehow against all odds this will happen. FTX will raise liquidity, liquidity and restart. And uh, and I don't know what the comments were uh, against you, Mark, but. Uh, you know, you you called it at least that this would be back on the table. And, it, you know, if you if you look across the industry at some some historical data of things that have happened and similar situations. So Bitfinex uh, in 2016, they suffered a hack. There was a lot of money taken. And then they basically offered out a token called BFX uh, and, and said the new exchange could offer, you know, a market. You know, so basically, if they relaunched the exchange. FTX claims could be um, sort of made whole by offering a token at, at you know at one dollar per loss. So similar to what uh, to what Bitfinex did back in 2016. So do you see this as a viable option? I mean, you called it that this would be the situation. You know, where do you where, where do you see this going? Yeah, I mean, I I, I figured back in the day that um, you know I, I take the dimmest view of our government, as you know, uh, with respect to crypto. Oh, that's um, and I think, and I think it's been it's somewhat confirmed by Operation Two Point uh, Choke Point Two Point mm-hmm. uh, and other things recently. You know, I always sort of suspected some of those things, and now we have confirmation of many of them. Certainly not all of them, um, but if you do take that dim view and you do believe that Gary Gensler was attempting to give FTX a no action letter in order to centralize all of crypto activity through one exchange, kill Binance, and then kill DeFi on the other side. I think if you're, I think if you're the government, if you're Gary Gensler, if you're that p- uh, pile of people that wants to control this, you don't want to outlaw it because then it just goes to Dubai, it goes to everywhere else in the world, and you don't have control of it. What you prefer to do is have it all legalized in a very narrow window and centralized somewhere. And FTX looked like it was going to be the vehicle to be that somewhere, and yeah. then Binance killed it, right? So. Yep. If you are, if you are the United States government and Gary Gensler, your preferred path is to somehow resurrect FTX and to get it back up and running again and re-centralize everything through it and through you. And I, that is why I tweeted what I tweeted. I was like, I don't know how this comes back, but I'll bet this will come back in some in some fashion. Now, Nick thinks it's just a business feint. Um, I, I disagree clearly. I think mm-hmm. I think there actually will be an effort to try to get it back up and running. Um, and, you know, the other, the other thing that's interesting here is, you know, dead coins never die. 
right? We've right. seen this many times before. Yep. The coins, you know, unlike a, a company, when a company dies, their stock comes off the exchange because they're right. dead, right? Yep. But with coins, when when a protocol dies, the coins are still out there. So if the protocol somehow comes back to life, the coins can come back to life. And now there's a lot of FTT holders out there um, who are, you know, are praying every morning that somehow this whole thing reboots itself. Um, so if I understand the numbers correctly, if you are a creditor, the, I, I think the deal that's on the table right now or would be on the table is you'd get roughly half your money back, right? If they decided yep. to liquidate based on what they have. Um, if they it, And if you have FTT, you basically have zero, right? So you don't get anything back if they just liquidate. And so I think if you're an FTT holder, you absolutely want this to happen because it's the only way your FTT becomes worth anything again. And it might even become worth a lot. Um, but if you're a creditor, you're sort of like, I don't know. I'm not sure I want you spending my money yep. uh, to reboot FTX, right? So, so I don't, if you're a creditor, you probably, or, you know, there's probably someone who want it to happen, but there's probably a lot of them who don't. So, yeah. Yeah. So that, that was the, you, you in Slovakia, this is coming over to you, but Mark, you, you, you led me right where I wanted to be. Uh, and so, guys, if you're watching this, tell us in the, in the comments if FTX relaunched, would you touch it? I'm just curious uh, the perception of, of what would happen. Rebranded, new management completely transparent, et cetera, et cetera. Would you, would you trade on it? Uh, and, and also hit the like button guys. Thanks. Uh, Suvaki, what I want to, what I want to ask you. So from, from a financial perspective, cause you, you've got a deep financial background. I, I see immediate, immediate challenges here. So, you know, doing this would basically require uh, some of the re recovered creditor funds, you know, to finance the reboot. Um, and if it fails again, then it would obviously reduce what creditors re you know, receive. Uh, and, and really the success of all this is dependent on a successful exchange launch. So there's a massive amount of, of, of variables here, not to mention you still have a one point something billion dollar hole you know, between the, the deficit of, of, of what they've recovered to what they owe to creditors. So that's a lot of headwinds financially. Do you think that this makes sense? Is, is, it, is it feasible? Does it make sense? No, not, not, <laughs> not based on what I can tell. Um, just based on FTX was this interesting corporation where you had traditional corporate world meet DeFi. Right? Now, a protocol goes under, they relaunch a token, make token holders hold, like that's par for the course in DeFi. In traditional finance, off the top of my head, I can't think of any. Okay, FTX was the in the top three biggest corporations within the centralized exchange industry. How many companies do you know in the top five of any sector went under and came back without significant changes in other words they went under merger or a takeover like ubs bought credit suisse how many of them just restarted and said hey we're back right? It, right it doesn't work like that the balance sheet is a mess and so we're talking about you know the creditors are going to be made whole all right they're going to be given some kind of interest in the company right if these i don't have the numbers but we we, we're making a massive assumption, assuming all those creditors are crypto-related creditors. In other words, they will accept tokens. If they're not accepting tokens, what are they accepting as, as interest? Are they accepting, is it equity or is it some form of preferred stock? They're not going to take debt because they already own debt, right? So it's going to be some equity 
pot. Then it scales out if you think in most places, if you have more than 50 shareholders, you are a public company. That makes FTX a publicly unlisted company. That leads into a whole other host of requirements. We're talking annual reports, we're talking audits, all the, the, they, they don't even need to be listed, but public companies have like their own requirements. So they're walking down this path of doing like this weird shit to try and save a corporation where it would be easier just to collapse it all, start from scratch if that's what you want to do. If you want to say, oh, there's a great technology and actually a very good operating model that was run by um, either genius criminals or incompetent crooks. Uh, I, I don't know, <laughs> one, of the, one of those two, right? That start again, right? But do right. not try and put and um, put the shock pads on this balance sheet. There, there is too much noise. And that balance sheet, having seen, having worked in audit, even when in the mergers and acquisition space, like when you work with this legacy financial data, it doesn't go away. Like this shitty balance sheet will be there to haunt them for years to come. Just start over if your intention is to save the exchange and do it again. And people then would actually use it. They'll be like, okay, well, uh, new branding. Like like people talk about all the FTX. The FTX brand, in my opinion, is fucking worthless. Right? Like too yeah. much damage has been done to it. Uh, it should be. Exactly. Right. So same technology, new exchange, you might have a future and just deal with whatever's going here. Your, your, your outside of crypto balance sheet will give you so many headaches off the back of this. And I think it's all being driven by token holders wanting, and, and I can, I can empathize with that, but it doesn't make sense for me from a financial standpoint. Yep. Cool. Well, I think we can leave this here. Uh, I did pull up the dashboard for those who haven't seen it. Of, of what does FTX sit on? Uh, shout out to CryptoQuant who puts together really amazing uh, analytical dashboards uh, and has given us access to this one. Uh, but they've got $20 million worth of Phantom, uh, $86 million worth of Bitcoin, $50 million worth of Matic, $46 million worth of Boba, some TRX. Uh, I'm pretty sure the Serum token is now dead. I think they got delisted uh, from a couple of different places, but nevertheless, uh, they sit on you know uh, a, you know a couple you know 807 million dollars of different token assets. Uh, and if they get liquidated, they will have an impact on whatever you know whatever chain or token that is. It remains to be seen if they go that route. They may not liquidate those tokens. Also remains to be seen. So, uh, in in any event, I just feel like. All this stuff kind of puts a, it's it, like it makes crypto look foolish to to the to the to the average consumer. Uh, if you're not tuned into what's going on, if you're not watching this show or the Daily Show every day, then then you probably think, how could you know? You know so many people got like this is the biggest uh, you know heist, you know in in financial history. How could you ever relaunch this thing? And I I just think it's a bad look. Um, now, whether they go that route because of Nick's points, which are, uh, you know, his job is to do everything, him being John Ray the third, is do everything in his power to make creditors whole, including a potential relaunch of what is, you know, technology that works, then maybe that's a route. So uh, we'll leave it there. Let's see how this evolves. So I can go ahead. Sorry, just one, like on that viewpoint, right? So if you, they've gone into bankruptcy, um, chapter 11 filings, they've, 
John Ray is going to relaunch to make creditors whole. Does that mean the exchange stops once all creditors have been made whole? Right. Oh, what happens after that? So yeah. I, 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 I find it odd with that someone with his experience is is pushing that narrative to to restart operations in that sense. I would have been thought he'd be negotiating with debtors, creditors, trying to get the best deals, trying to sell the technology, trying to sell the intangible assets. There must be some um, doing something, but restarting the operations implies that they're coming out of chapter 11 which i don't know okay well let's let's see how this evolves this is this is again one of those things that i'm sure we'll be talking about on many future episodes because there's going to be chapters on chapters uh and this just extends what the uh, ftx movie is going to be and so we you know we we, we wait the release of jonah hill playing uh sam bankman freed and so <laughs> um so so with that said guys i want to i want to i want to go into more of a uh, a, a hypothetical discussion because I am curious as your viewpoints. This has been on my mind for a while, and it's something I've wanted to talk about uh, on this forum for a while. But we just haven't—I haven't been able to pull together the the, the information uh, to have the discussion. And and I did last night. And so here it is. Um, we are in a, a sort of you know whether we're exiting a bull market, ending a recession, or excuse me, exiting a bear market, ending a recession, and then going into a bull next year. It, it, you know, we'll talk through a little bit of that as well. But that's kind of irrelevant. What, what's relevant to this discussion is, and I'm calling them Gen 1 versus Gen 2 protocols. And what I mean by that is we saw a bull run 2021 to 2022. Uh, well, obviously it ended. But there was a lot of protocols that, that, that reached new all-time highs that have very sustainable business models. Some are more transparent than others, but I would consider them Gen 1. Like they released in 2021, uh, and their tech is not as, as flashy, as shiny, as new, as forked is basically what is going on now with these gen 2 protocols. So, uh not to pick you know not to pick on anybody but to br to bring together a a comparison that's going to make sense to the audience and also aligns well statistically uh is Beethoven X and Thenify. And so I would consider Beethoven X the gen 1 and Thenify the gen 2. Uh and if you look at the numbers and and basically what I'm saying is how do you value these, these, you know, are values rational in crypto at all? How do you value, you know, what they are both doing, uh, given, you know, their, their trajectory as a business? Uh, and one is, has been around far longer, is far more transparent with what they uh, actually, you know, how they operate. Um, and, and token price doesn't reflect that. And that's where I'm going with this. So let me, let me just give you a bit of stats and then we'll jump in. So uh, Beethoven X, 7.6 million market cap. Token price is about six cents and had a plus 2.7% week over week, uh, you know, movement. Um, they're proven tech. They're in partnership with Balancer. They've got, uh, you know, very secure smart contracts. Uh, they've innovated even beyond what Balancer does uh, with boosted pools and many, many other things. Uh, they've got a combined, they're on two chains on Phantom and Optimism. They have a combined TVL of about 96 million across those two chains. They had 3.9 million in trading volume yesterday. Uh, and so there's a lot of things there that, 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 you know, that's kind of their stats on the Thenify side, 7.7 .7 million cap. So basically the same token price, 40 cents, 18% move week over or yesterday, day over day. Uh, and they are new tech, a solid iteration of the V1 and they forked and made it better. Uh, and they're incorporating concentrated liquidity and they've got 5 million more dollars in TVL yet their token moves at, you know, a completely different, 
um, speed than what we see from from sort of the Gen 1 series of protocols. So that was a lot of information, but I needed to lay the context. How do you guys go about valuing these types of, of protocols, um, particularly when Beethoven is so transparent about their treasury, their operations, their financial reporting? Like they are leagues ahead of everybody else in the space in what they present. And so I will digress and, uh, and, and, and would love to hear your thoughts. Yeah, so both of these are bags that I own. So thank you for bringing up uh, two of my coins. <laughs> so that's three in this whole show. So I'm doing I'm doing pretty well so far. Fortune, yeah, full full disclosure. Yeah. So uh, and, and clearly, like I I like both of them. Um, like you, I'm sort of perplexed at um, how the valuations have not really panned out uh, of their coin, of their market caps, of their coins. Um, and I do and I do share your sentiment that Beethoven X does have very excellent. Um, fundamentals and technology, um, but the, mar the the market, I don't think the market gives a shit. I mean, I honestly, they see it as it's a DEX and there's a million DEXs out there um, and it's a DEX with kind of goofy iconography, uh, you know, the cartoon ghosts and stuff like that, right? It doesn't feel like a serious financial product. So I think, I, you know, I, I think for whatever, I think that that plays against it somewhat in the broader market probably not within the phantom fanboy market. I don't care about it, but I think, I think there are people who do. Um, and if you look at sort of uh, the DEXs, my initial impression was that it's a game where you have to be one of the giant ones like Curve or Uniswap in order to really realize the games. And I started doing some math and I realized that Curve right now has a $884 million market cap and $5 billion in TVL. So roughly, you know, so their, their market cap is roughly 1.56 of their TVL. And if you apply that same yardstick to Athena, which is a curve killer, right? So uh, it, it should be roughly the same. Uh, its market cap should be 19 million, given that its TVL is 105 million. Um, however, the market cap is 8 million. So it's about, it's worth about half of what it should be if the same yardstick is applied. Um, so I, I don't know what to make of that other than, you know, Curve gets the bonus 2x because it's the biggest kid on the block, right? So, um, so that may be why. Um, but I don't know. I I don't I don't think that the normal corporate fundamentals apply to any of these things because they are decentralized protocols. Um, I, I would prefer to know more about their runway and some other things, but right. I think it boils down to TVL. Well, I, I can give you the runway, and, and I and I included this sort of in in like the summary of what's going on, like you know, and this is why the discussion is interesting. So basically, Beethoven as a treasury is across three different chains, and and on Phantom they hold two point five one two point one uh, five one million in treasury assets, effectively not including beats or or the optimism grants that they got. They have about two and a half million dollars in liquidity as a treasury, um, and and with Thena. You don't know what they have. We have no idea. There's no transparency. Beethoven is also on the way to being cash flow positive, as they put out yesterday. And and nobody nobody does as in depth financial reporting on their protocol health as what Beethoven does. And so, it is not comparable to traditional tradfi where these metrics matter. Um, and that's that's the immaturity of crypto as a whole. And so I, I asked Nick Nick and Suvaki, you know. Will it require so like Ethos Reserve has launched their liquidity on on Beethoven? Um, will it require a catalyst 
to propel sort of older Gen 1 protocols, and they're not old, but you know what I mean, you know, comparatively speaking, will it, will it, will it require a catalyst to get token price or, or any type of like appreciation moving? Uh, and by that, I mean Ethos Reserve absolutely takes off. TVL blows up, uh, things like that. Um, or will it require an alt season where Phantom picks up and, and Optimism picks up and TVL grows there and just naturally um, migrates into you know, the, the best platforms that are there. I, I, I got to step out for a few minutes. So let me go first. And then Suvlaki, who knows a, a lot about this, um, can follow. But you touched on it. Um, when you talk about the value of something, there needs to be consensus about whether that matters or not. Um, in the equities market, you have funds, you have um you have high frequency traders, you have individual investors that all agree on how to value or what metrics to look at that actually matter when you're trying to value a particular business. Same in the real estate market. So what happens is, let me get, try to think of an example. Okay, so if, if, if you've got a coin trading at a dollar on Binance and the same coin is trading at 95 cents on a DEX, the, the, someone's going to arbit right? Because everyone agrees that this thing is worth a dollar, right? So someone feels like they're getting a good deal. So they come in and they automatically arbit. If you're in the real estate market and you see a property that's trading under market value, someone's going to come and buy it. Same with equities. And some of these systems are automatic, whether it's equities or arbing, you know, this coin between a, a, a centralized exchange and a DEX. Now, when you're thinking about, okay, the Beats token, after it drops to a certain level, who comes in there and scoops up that bargain, right? Who, at what point is it a bargain? Okay, we can look at all these different metrics around, you know, TVL, how much, you know, what is the fee generation capability of this thing? But at the end of the day, where does the incremental buyer come from? Is someone sitting there looking for X token to get below a certain level on some metric? And then automatically they deploy capital to it because that's what happens everywhere else. Yep. So these valuations on these micro cap businesses um, do not matter because capital at that level in DeFi flows to where people think they can get a great return. And a great return is usually measured over a 30 and 90 day period. And when you've got an older, more established um, uh, uh, DEX that hasn't scaled and hasn't become this huge thing, it's in no man's land where, yeah, the numbers look great, right? It's a good team. They do great financial reporting. Um, you know, uh, they're, 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 they're making more money. Sorry, they're losing less money than what they used to. Everything looks great. But the problem is, Mark touched on it, you touched on it, Clay, is the incremental buyer doesn't care because the incremental buyer is looking for the decks on the new chain. Yep, narratives. Right? Correct. And, and that... That's not to disparage the, the older protocol. You just need to think about, and we can say it should be worth X. doesn't matter because we don't agree, right? The market doesn't care that it should be worth X. The market says, well, theme is new. It's on a bigger chain and we're going to go there. There's The incentives are higher. Mm -hmm. They're launching concentrated liquidity. It's not a, a theme or a beats discussion. It is older decks versus newer decks discussion. You've got all these solidly forks launching all over the place. Solisnek launched yesterday on Avalanche. You've got Kronos on Arbitrum. You've got Glacier 
Um, also on Arbitrum. No, Glacier is on AVAX. Uh, see, I'm, I'm even confused and I do this all day. <laughs> so, so yeah. you know, you, you get interest and activity gravitates to those things. And unfortunately, a, a, a robust fundamental analysis of the numbers does not equate to the market cap of the project at this stage, right? Because it's a very immature market. Um, and and I don't know what it takes to get there. I mean, I mean look, Beethoven still doesn't make money, right? So, so you know, it, it, and most of these things don't make money. But I thought you just you said it, Beethoven was profitable though, Clay, didn't you? Uh, well, no, yeah, I mean, they put out a less money. That, yeah, that they are, they're, they're about, just about to be, yes. About uh, to be. That's positive. positive, yep. Oh, yeah, so I mean, when 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 you think of that, you know, these things come out and, and we expect big things to happen. And then a year and a half later, the gloss kind of wears off. And again, it's not a Beethoven thing. This is yeah. all of them. Yeah, and, right? and I don't mean, I mean to... I just it was two. Th it was the only only two protocols I could find with exceptionally similar, similar metrics in the same yeah. category. Uh, and actually, I understand one the comparison. Yeah, yeah. And, but, and so I'll give you another example, right? Like, um, there, there's a proposal today from from the Beethoven team in in to Balancer that you know for for a monthly consulting fee to the Beethoven team, right? So that they can keep the wheels moving. Yeah, and and and, well, and kind it's of more than, it's more than that, Nick. So I, I, I get it, but I think like there's these other factors in play as in terms of just a funding, um, in terms of the general narrative. Um, sorry to interrupt. I'll I'll go into all of it once I'll once you, once you finish your point. Yeah. Um yeah, no, no. Uh, my, my point was that, you know, the the final point was that these things need, you know, need to kind of work out how they can keep operating so that the good work they do gets valued at some point when the market matures and people are looking at these metrics. A lot of these, you know, a lot of these businesses are less than a year old, right. less than two years old. How do you analyze that without a track record? So yeah. anyway, that, that that's all I was saying. Well, two and a half million in the treasury with like outside of beat tokens or optimism, like uh, funds, like that's, that's, you know, that's certainly something uh i would i would say that there's you know there's already funds there for runway and they transparently say that they use them uh for um uh for, you know for for farming effectively and making more money so uh Subaki, i'll kick it over to you i know you probably have lots to talk yeah i think i mean this is a difficult topic for me and like <laughs> because of the examples you chose like for everyone like watching in case you didn't know like I I drove or played a large part of Beethoven's financial reporting structure, like in terms oh. of all those metrics. So like I I, I drove the process. So I'm gonna put a, a, a casual plug in there. If you know a protocol that's looking for setting up financial reporting frameworks like Beethoven, contact me. <laughs> um, but anyways, so we put loads of effort and loads of work getting the clear transparent view because we agree with the one point that all three of you made is the market is not mature enough right now to understand that value, but it will be, right? And like when we stack something like Beethoven and Thena next to each other, one thing that we that we must remember is where they are in their, in their launch life cycle, right? We're comparing Beethoven that is 18 months old 
-hmm. versus Thena, who is a few months old. If we compare Thena and Beethoven at the same age, yep. the answer is slightly different. Right. right. So it it is like the new shiny thing. And like when we talk about narratives and technology, yes, Thena are doing concentrated liquidity with gamma and fusion. It seems very exciting. On the other side, Beethoven's doing boosted pools, which is also an exciting tech technology that's being rolled over. And on top of that, like there is scope for concentrated liquidity on Balancer. If you kick around on Polygon, you can see that Gyroscope has deployed some test pools to do concentrated liquidity on Balancer pools, which means that technology is being worked on in that kind of environment. And they still evolving in terms of managed pools on the pipeline. Sorry, I like I know all of this because I worked with yeah, them yeah. for, for so long. So I, I don't great need insight. to come up as a an show. inside man. We need to uh, know that. Great <laughs> like, listen, Suwagi, not not to cut you uh, like continue, but I, I bring this up because I see a mass deviation in in what is irrational valuation. Like like I know what goes on behind the scenes, you know, a little bit of Beethoven. And it's really, really like the tech is great. The innovation, you know, never stops. Um, and so it's just, it's just, it, it's more of a hypothetical discussion as to why is, you know, what, what is the, the, the market irrationality and what are the uh, catalysts to change potentially? And, and to me, like ethos reserve being a huge success on, Optimism is a catalyst. Um, and obviously, like, look, just having a standard altcoin rotation and a real bull run and, and you know, having money flow back to the chains at which they are on, like all of that stuff is going to that, like that'll play a huge hand in everything. But uh, to me, it just it, it doesn't make a lot of sense. And trying to make sense of it is is challenging. Yeah. Remember yeah. back when Fan when during the bull run, when Phantom had uh, a very large TVL and compared to all the other coins, it was valued quite a bit less than kind of everything else. Like by, a, I think it was like a factor of like fourteen. It was like a fourteen to one ratio, and everything else was at like a four or five to one ratio, right? So, so the thesis was Phantom should at some point uh, go up in value to uh, properly evaluate the the price of the coin versus the TVL in the entire ecosystem, which never happened. Right. Uh, but that was the theory, right? So this reminds me very much of those discussions. Yeah. And I mean, Mark, in that stage, right, Beethoven clocked over 400 million in TBL. Right. So, and like Phantom yeah. was still quite under compared to, compared to those valuations that you're talking about. I think, I think the, uh, and I think this is another thing that 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 Nick and I are trying to work work on at um, at Rivello is in terms of understanding the money flows within protocols. So how many people actually understand how the money flows through Beethoven and versus how the money actually flows through Thena? The, the e economic flows from front to end. I, I saw a Twitter thread a few weeks ago where someone said that. The Thena pro, not the Thena protocol, the solidly fork protocol, insert random name, sure. isn't isn't a participant in the ecosystem. Does that make sense? Well, when you're tracking financial flows, who's paying for the incentives, right? So, when you have that kind of narrative being right. put out there, like 
this is where like and this is what we're trying to focus on is in terms of educating people to understand how this because it's not only this this happens in almost every sector within DeFi, and that is why we all agree that the market's not mature enough because there's not enough education about maturing the market everyone is about pumping their own bags right how many how many of these threads and how many like influencers are getting better at it but i mean there was there was quite a big story earlier this week about influencers shilling things that you know they didn't disclose their bags and you know mm-hmm. it blew up and that is that is this that is the problem that nick and i are trying to solve at Rovello is that education piece and and getting users to the point that you fully understand because you're right clay like beats isn't net net positive right now they 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 return 90 cents for every dollar that they spend as of yesterday that's a lot better than what it used to be and it took a lot of work to get there and a lot of planning but on that trajectory what happens when beats goes net positive right do you then think of it the same way that you think of it does beats then now be this this um more mature protocol that is struggling to find its feet or does it then look like an attractive purchase proposition and we're only talking 10 cents right in the in the context of my my thing is to argue that they're the only ones that even really tell you that stuff like like it's not even like it's so immature and so irrational that I couldn't tell you what the probability scale of, the, of Athena is. And that, and that is my point is that the technology is great. The, the, the shipping of, of new innovation is great. Uh, the transparency behind what they do is, is, is bar none. And the market doesn't seem to care because we, we, we live in a, a crypto world where the narrative and the hype is what really drives sort of like the next wave of, of capital rotation. And so it doesn't matter yet. It doesn't matter yet, Clay. And I but, completely agree. But 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 it, it will. will. And, and 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 the reason most protocols don't go to that, um, there's two reasons that they don't go in, in you know, they don't disclose that information or put that information together. Guys like Sublaki are very hard to find in DeFi right? Because they can make a lot more money at Morgan Stanley or wherever else they are. That's number one. So it's a skill set that is lacking in DeFi, which is weird. It's a financial industry, but you don't have financial professionals that can actually pass this information and present it. That's number one. Number two, if you've got a protocol that's lighting money on fire, okay, month after month, the last thing you want to do is put out financial reports. So so that's the second biggest problem. Um, you know, I was uh, very, um, uh, I, I, would, I would commend Beethoven regularly, every month when their reports came out. So Lucky had a big part in, in doing them because as an investor, it gave me something to analyze. And in most yeah. of the other protocols, I had nothing to analyze. The black um, now, they were losing money, but I didn't care. Like at least I had something that I could go through, and 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 you know I spent a lot of time reading those things. And and I, my view, my my hope is that um, that starts to become the norm. It will. What we just don't know is what the timeline is. Um, you need more sophisticated investors to be in the space, and and it will it will revert to to whatever traditional finance looks like from a reporting standpoint because the numbers will get bigger. 
Yeah, absolutely. So uh, we are almost at 100. Guys, tell one friend about the show and have him watch with you on Friday, and we're going to get there. Um, uh, Nick, great point. And, and so let me let me just just for for clarity's sake, I this isn't a Beethoven Thena specific topic. This is a Gen 1, Gen 2 protocol topic that I try to rationalize in my mind because you can make the same comparison with Liquid Driver and Plutus Dow and Arbitrum because effectively what they are is a convex layer for the ecosystem, a governance black, a governance token black hole that sucks up you know, the liquidity and then directs uh, or sucks up the tokens and then stakes them and then uh, directs liquidity accordingly. So the business models are very similar but the valuations are not. And, and to me, the only thing I can come up with is this is a, uh, a narrative game. The space is, is driven by shiny object syndrome and, and capital rotation inflows based on what's new. Uh, and, and, and what's old becomes new once again. And, and, and it, it will play that rotation game, I believe. Uh, but the same comparisons could be made about many, many uh, low caps across different sectors. And so... Uh, you know, not to, it wasn't a call out of any specific, it was a great comparison, I think, but not, not a call out of anyone specifically, but that, like, same, go ahead, Nick. The same thing, the same thing happens in, in the equities market too, right? New industry comes out, new sector comes out, new technology comes out. It, it gets bid up and it gets bid up in some cases to a ridiculous level. The difference there is you also have a sophisticated, established legacy capital pool that will go in and will scoop up the bargains when some of the money shifts to the shiny new thing. We don't have that part, that component yet in mm. DeFi. Um, and, and you know, I'll certainly buy things if I think they're cheap, if I know that everyone else at some point might agree that they're cheap. Right now, I could, you know, I've got my own valuation uh, metrics for protocols just for myself. It doesn't matter because no one else is, is using that same framework. I could be right. I could be wrong. Who gives a shit, right? You need some group of people to agree with you on those things and then follow you into that trade if you're correct. Um, so that'll come. Uh, but yeah. it, it's the same in every other space, except there, it, it's, it's multi-dimensional in other spaces. In DeFi right now, there's only one dimension. Follow the narrative, right? So yep. it's not good or bad. That's just what it is. And, and recognizing that while you're in that regime is very important. Otherwise, you get stuck holding some some tokens for two, three years that don't move, and you know you're you're you're, you're the you know you're sitting there with your spreadsheet going, but this number's above this number, and therefore right. everyone else is crazy, um, while you just sit there losing money. I I, I just personally believe that um, like even even the liquid driver example, like they continue to ship products even though their token price has not moved like it did uh you know on previous cycle uh and and the you know the new thing fire wrapper like they've got a lot of things that they're doing that are that are going to like i just think that all of this is uh is a cycle and 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 it always like ends up rotating back and so that's you know that's where i wanted to that's why i wanted to have the discussion frankly because um you know we see this time and time again if the team sticks around and ships the way that 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 both Liquid Driver or Beethoven X do. And so, Suvaki, go ahead. Clear, I think, I mean, Liquid Driver is actually a a very good example because in, in recent months, they've done a lot of work to increase protocol profitability. They've basically changed business strategies. Zero emissions. So now, pardon? 
zero emissions effectively. I mean, that's what they're yeah, yeah. So now, if you look at that and you see the 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 the, the token price stays flat, but the cash flow positive, right? Someone is going to realize. And then someone else is going to realize and then more people are going to realize and then smarter money will start flowing between the protocols in terms of who is cash flow positive and who's lighting money on fire because you can always make a quick um buck in protocols that are lighting their money on fire because they they're in the launch phase it's going to happen and so you can high risk higher risk high reward but then most of you're going to start diverse I think what you might see is people start diversifying their portfolio more between just ETH, Bitcoin, and shitcoining, between ETH, Bitcoin, cash flow positive protocols, and shit, and like just aping into the next the next thing, and um, that that's just part of market maturity. And you know, like one last plug, sorry, is that I now we spent so much time and effort building like that. I guess financial reporting infrastructure at Beethoven, I'm so happy to see them still doing those. The Well, this weekly thread that you put out is a new feature that they're doing, and I'm so happy to see them doing it, keep yeah. people informed, and I'm happy that that legacy has stayed um, because that is what we all want to see. Yeah, I, so the last thing I'll say, and then I think we can jump over to the, the final topic and, and, and we'll maybe give a round, a round the horn of Solana phone worker doesn't work. Uh, and so um, the last thing I, I will say is um, this is where things like regulation of the space actually matter. Like if you have a company who, who transparently, transparently puts out financial reporting on the state of their business, then when real, real people who care about that sort of thing come into the space, uh, a regulated space that is, you know, hopefully properly regulated. That sort of thing is going to matter in the long run. Um, and there's not, to Nick's point, uh, there's really not many other protocols, if any, that do that sort of thing. And so, why do we need regulation? I, I'm why? saying more for institutional money to to truly flow in. Like we need we need some type of of at least in the United States, we need some type of of rules uh, as to like how to operate in this space. Let, let me let me ask you, Suvalaki. Um, uh, maybe regulation isn't the right word, but do you think um, DeFi would be healthier if there was a standardised set of disclosures that every project would need to put out when they were launching? Financial disclosures, right? That everyone put out the same information um, that we could all review with a certain level of transparency. Do you think? that DeFi would get there faster. Absolutely. Right. So I, obviously we all agree on that. The question is, how do you do that? Who enforces those rules, right? The, 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 the community is not going to self-enforce because most people don't want to do the work and they just, you know, they'd like to get in early. They'd like to be part of the problem, right? Which is, you know, let's get in on some kind of private deal or all these other things that happen. Um, so I understand Clay's point that if you put rules in place, and I don't want government regulation, but some kind of, this is the benchmark for financial disclosure that we all expect and, and, and we're willing to accept, then you kind of weed out maybe the bottom five or 10% of charlatans. You'll still get sophisticated charlatans that'll take us for a ride, but you start to get a situation where now the numbers matter more than what they do today.
So I get, I, I get both your points. Um, I don't know how to solve it, but I, I wish we could. All right. Isn't there, isn't there also a lot of money sitting on the sidelines that cannot come into DeFi because of absolutely that was, yeah. that was, that was my point. Mark. I think that's like, your absolutely. biggest point. Yeah. yeah my, like, is that in the end, in two years from now, when there is proper, I guess maybe is regulation, not the right word. Like there's proper, there's proper investing guidelines for financial institutions with massive bags sitting on the sidelines, waiting for things to be clear. Then a company that, has clear financials, puts out financial reporting like a traditionally, you know, publicly traded company would, is going to benefit because people can look at your, you know, look at the health of your business. And that doesn't happen in this space. And so, you know, this this conversation has evolved in a way that I didn't actually know that it would, which is the great part of the show. Um, and so, you know, so yeah, so I think that, you know, my 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 kind of perspective on this is that capital it, it goes in rotation all the time we see it every single cycle um and and phantom has to pick back up as a chain uh and that will help uh and i also think that like all it takes is is one like again i go back to the ethos reserve thing like if that turns into a liquidity situation and that liquidity lives on your platform like those are narratives that people start to chase and so that like there's a lot of things that i think that are are interesting about uh and, and irrational about the space yeah, I, I, I get it. I think my understanding based on traditional finance, whether it's the International Accounting Standard Board, whether it's the uh, the equivalent in North America, um, that's just from accounting framework, whether it's the International Auditing Standards, whether it's actual um, sector-specific regulation, the people that set up those guidelines or the rules that Nick is talking about most half of the people that sit in that committee that decide those things are industry experts, right? So when I know this because of my uh, my 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 background in auditing is the accounting standards boards doesn't set out a new new accounting standard on fair value without speaking to the entire industry in terms of um, what that actually means for them and adoption. So we can we would be part of setting those rules and we can do that or refine regulation might bring more money closer to the table, but we need to play a significant part in establishing what is acceptable and what is not acceptable. We can't wait for someone else to do that. And, you know, as whether, whether that approach gets traction or not, I don't know. It depends on like which pockets within the ecosystem you look at, but setting those, we don't want, someone else to come and enforce those rules and give us those frameworks like a, a regulator or external body, right? We want to do it ourselves. So what are we waiting for? Yeah, that's that. I mean, honestly, man, a amen. Like if, if, if you wait, you will be beholden to whatever is, is you know, bestowed upon you, whoever decides these are the rules, then that's, and we're not far from it. And so, you know, if Beethoven, you don't build it, they will come. <laughs> exactly. exactly. <laughs> the complete inverse. Well, uh, we, we haven't, we, we haven't announced this properly yet, but Sublaki's trying to do that at Revolut, a, a financial reporting mm -hmm. B2B practice, which goes, you know, basically what he was doing at Beethoven, but at scale. Um, and, 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 and the reason that's exciting is it, it plugs into exactly what you guys were just talking about. 
which is investors value that kind of information. Therefore, protocols should value that kind of information. And the community at large should value the information because if you're someone that isn't participating in that system, right, if you're not giving the same kind of level of disclosures and same reporting, then you have a lot less interest than those that do, right? Um, if, you, if you let people look at your books, they're more likely to, to engage with your protocol and engage with your business. So I think yep. it gets there. It's just going to take some time. All right, I got to cap us off here, guys, uh, and, and we're going to move on to the final topic of the day. Um, what I will say is capital rotates, and and sometimes it takes patience. Uh, actually, every time it takes patience. And and we are about to discuss whether we are in headed for a bull run or, you know, we, we saved. We usually do the macro stuff up front, uh, and I want to switch it around a little bit because I think it's better to, uh, you know, it's sometimes not as, uh, as as optimistic as we'd like. So let's let's save it for the back. Uh, and so, you know, I think that we should talk about the FOMC minutes, Bitcoin price, and and some of the uh, some of the information or uh, interviews that I saw this week from Wells Fargo, uh, and just get a, an overall perspective on the markets. But on the Gen Gen One Gen Two thing, the final thought for me is like there's always new narratives and capital always rotates. And and there, six months ago, people were saying Phantom was dead because, you know, the foundation couldn't get their stuff together. And you I know, was and, saying and, Phantom was and, dead. And Roos was getting liquidated and, and <laughs> you know, and all of the things that happened. And now the narrative is, wow, the foundation is, is doing incredibly well. And I can't believe that they are so ahead of marketing and, and yada, yada, yada. So things change very, very quickly in this space and on a dime. And so uh, thank you all for your input on that. That's a discussion I wanted to have for a long time. Uh, I want to talk about FOMC minutes. Uh, and and I had a chance to read through. I read I didn't uh, I didn't um, chat GPT this one uh, because I think it's you know, it's an important uh, it's just a hugely important um, sort of macro perspective of understanding what what the Fed is thinking and everything they do is calculated. And when when JP, my boy JP, gets on stage uh, on in, in May, every word that comes out of his mouth is, is held accountable, which means he is exceptionally calculated in what he says. And so uh, so I, so you know so basically you can hang on every word because the reactions of the markets are going to hang on every word. And so what I found fascinating about this most recent one, there's too much stuff to go through uh, at length, but um, we'll read a couple little pieces from it. So so the economic outlook, we're just going to keep it on on outlook for going forward we've got a 30k bitcoin we got ethereum you know on the rip uh but we all know that this ties back into to uh you know the larger financial markets like say if you'd like to say bitcoin has depegged itself from the s p i would challenge you on that and say you know let's see what happens if the s p you know goes to 3800 and uh so with that said uh, given their, their given their assessment of the potential economic effects of the recent banking sector developments, the staff projects at this time the March meeting uh, include a mild recession starting later this year with the recovery of the subsequent two years. Real GDP GDP growth in 2024 was projected to remain below the staff's estimate of a potential output growth, and then GDP growth in 2025 was expected to be above that potential. Uh, so I, I start there. This is the first time in any minutes that the FOMC has had, dating back to you know since we've had this inflation problem, that they use the word recession, and they used it three times in this in this paper. Um, to me, it's like we're sort of exiting a, a deep, horrible bear market and entering into the, you know the, the next wave, which is a recessionary period uh, across uh, probably across the globe, not just here domestically. And then they sort of highlight that here. And I'm going to say one more point, and then I'm going to open it up. 
On a four-quarter basis uh, change, total PCE inflation was forecast to be 2.8% this year with core inflation at 3.5%. Um, and so, you know, in 2024 and 2025, both total and core uh, price inflation were expected to be near 2%. This is the Fed's evaluation of things. They think that at the end of this year, going into next year, we could see a PCE at 2.8% and then 2% in 2025. Like, it's the first time I've seen any type of positive signals from, and like, take, you know, if this is how you read this, and, and Nick might totally disagree or Mark or whomever, this is the first time I've seen any type of like real out, out, you know, output on like what will next year and the following year look like. And it seems like they feel like they're on the right track and we're in into recessions. Given that markets are forward looking, they usually rebound before a recession is over. What do you make of this? And I know that was a long intro, but there's a lot of context that needs to be added. So, um, Nick, you usually have uh, a lot of opinions on macro. What do you what do you think about everything I just said? So, you know, there is no doubt that we're heading into a global recession if we're not already there. All of the economic indicators, I look at about 60 of them. There's 60 high frequency data points that come in um, over a 30 day period. And I look at all of them. Most people that manage their money in a sophisticated way do that. They're all saying that we're in a recession or we're about to go into a recession, depending on which sector you're looking at. So to hear the Fed say, hey, we're probably going to have a recession for the first time, where most smart market participants have been saying it for the better part of six to nine months, that's par for the course. That's that's kind of what they do, right? Yeah. Um, they, you know, they're in the, they, they don't want to panic markets and things like that. So that makes sense. In terms of what 2024 and 2025 look like, we don't know until we know how bad 2023 is going to get. That's kind of the, 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 the variable that matters in that equation. Trying to predict 2025 or 2024 when you don't know um, what breaks during this year, could be commercial real estate, could be another credit event, it could be more bank failures, it could be a number of different things, right? There could be some more geopolitical destabilization didn't china surround taiwan or something i don't know yeah but, they did. yeah so you know trying to uh model 24 is a is a futile exercise in my opinion um only because it is a period in time where it's kind of impossible tomorrow what to model what december 23 looks like right now if yep. the smartest people i know their answer is i don't know usually there are two or three scenarios that most people model against. Now there's like seven, six. It, 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 there are so many things at play right now, so many balls in the air yeah. that everyone is reducing their gross exposure, right? Um, and they're just kind of biding their time. No one is making huge directional bets right now. Um, I'm talking about professional investors, right? Hedge funds and things like that. When, when things are so uncertain, you reduce your gross exposure, right? Maybe you have a small bullish bias or a small bearish bias, but you're trying not to get hurt because you're in an environment where, where you know, there's going to be body bags and you don't want to be part of that group. I, I'm also in that camp where I think I know what's going to happen, but I have very little certainty. And as a result, um, I don't make big bets when I'm not sure. I'm still involved, obviously. Um, and, and, and yeah, so I think... You know, paying too much attention to what the Fed says right now, like they're just kind of giving you information that the markets have already known 
um, for several months. Uh, you know, the equities market is showing a little bit of strength on the back of CPI. But, you know, CPI is up over a six-month period. Yeah. Um, PPI looks good, though. I mean, like yeah. I, I, I put more weight into PPI than I do CPI because I think it's that, a leading indicator. Yeah, 100 percent. Yeah. Yeah. So, so, so these things look, you know, they're looking better. Yeah. Um, but, you know, I think I saw some some data. I think it was on Tuesday that showed inflation ticking back up in yeah. some real time inflation tracking. Um, so. You know, the correct answer is I don't know. Um, and, and you know, just keeping on, keeping an eye on how things develop. But um, what what is certain is the crypto market is showing remarkable strength, um, both Bitcoin and now on the back of yesterday's news, Ethereum. Um, I would like to live in a world uh, where I, I think the I think the equity market gets crushed because um, corporate earnings are already crushed. You know, you don't need to wait for the for reporting season to see that. Um, so the equities get hit because that's what happens, you know, during a recession. But Bitcoin keeps going up. That would yeah. be a fantastic trading opportunity yeah. because now I have so many levers that I can pull on the long and the short side. It was really hard last year when everything <laughs> kind of went down. Um, you had to have a lot of conviction on the short side. But if you've got certain things that you know if you've got bitcoin decoupled from the rest of the the chaos that's it i i i think that's a really good opportunity um for the way that i do things anyway anyway i'll, I'll pause there so yeah so i mean in the inverse relationship of, of of gold to equities effectively and like you know i would love to see it be a safe haven asset as well i'm gonna play this one video we're gonna give some final thoughts we're gonna get the heck out of here because i know you know everybody's time is valuable uh and we appreciate everybody uh sticking with us hit the like button if you're watching this so uh Basically, um, who was it? Wells Fargo, uh, analyst on CNBC. Their target for the S&P for this month was 42. We have hit that. And this gentleman is basically saying they're, uh, it, you, you need to get out before May. And so uh, we will we'll listen to it quickly and then see. And if you, by the way, if you can't hear it, can somebody tell me? So I, I know that I did it wrong. Let's, uh, let's click the play button here. Fargo's Chris Harvey urging investors to, quote, sell before May and go away, calling for a meaningful correction in stocks. That was, of course, before a couple of good back-to-back -back reads on inflation. Mr. Harvey is here with us on set to explain. Welcome. Thank I'm, you, I'm glad we finally corralled you because I saw this note. We were like, let's get Harvey. Our call, this is, I'm quoting from your note, okay? We're within spitting distance of our 4,200 S&P target, now shifting direction. Expect a 10% correction in the next three to six months, a front-end inversion, a 7% year-to-date run, and a banking crisis that will likely take an economic toll triggered our reversal. And here we are. The market still looks like it wants to go higher. Dow's up 400 points. What say you? What I say is the same thing I said before. We're going to have a correction. We're at 4,200. Our price target is 4,200. That's 20 times a 210, 210 number. That is, those are both really, really healthy numbers. I can't get a bear case from this level. And what we expect is we expect a pullback over the next three, six months, whether it's related to banks, whether it's related to the Fed, or what, whether it's related to multiples compressing. At the end of the day, the risk reward just does not look that attractive. Yeah. What, what do you think this rally is about? Is it on a belief that, you know, the so-called bad news that we've gotten on the 
you know, economic front, some of the Fed speak, they're just going to continue to do what they do. They're going to eventually put us into a recession. They're going to have to cut rates. Yeah, yeah Scott. Typically, when we have a tightening cycle end, you get a pretty big rally. You get a, a 3% rally in, a, in one month. You can get upwards of 8% in three months. And I think that's what's going on. But if we're going to have the Fed cutting, something bad had to happen. And so we're in this sweet spot right now, but we're not going to stay there for very long. What so something bad had to happen. And so I guess the question is, you know, like, so if this guy's right and we see a 10% drop uh, in, in the equities market, um, really all I was trying to you know, garner out of this discussion is does Bitcoin come down with it? Because there's a lot, there's a lot of positive sentiment on crypto Twitter. Uh, there's a lot of momentum for Bitcoin right now, uh, and just kind of uh, you know getting your thoughts on on whether you think that is Bitcoin being treated more like gold, or is, is the Wells Fargo call for a ten percent pullback in the SP in the back half of this year? You know, something that's going to like like you know that that affects profit taking, that that affects strategy. So I will digress. Yeah, well, you you asked earlier what you know. What does it mean that the Fed is actually saying the recession word? And uh, you know, I they tend to understate everything, right? They said that inflation was non-existent, then it was temporary. It was going to go up and pop back down. You know, so if the Fed is saying you know we're going into a recession, I, I mean, holy shit! That I mean that that means depression, right? In my mind, at least no. that means that's what they're thinking, right? If they're saying recession, so I you know it, it's like the English, right? If they say, well, let's go to bit pass shaped. You run because that means the earth is opening up and all hell is about to pop out, right? So that's kind of how I see what's going on. That that, that was my reaction to when I saw the recession word uh, come out of the Fed. So I, I, I hopefully hopefully Bitcoin does decouple. I believe it probably will. I think it's got a good chance of decoupling and remaining decoupled, but we'll see. Can I can I just say uh, yeah. how cool it must be to be Christopher Harvey, right? That guy went on stage. His prediction was wrong. If I say it's always going to do a pullback, I'm going to be right at some other point. Uh, and he, he hit all the bingo cards, right? He was like, oh, the banking crisis or the Fed cutting rates or multiple tightenings. Like, so he's literally <laughs> covered all his bases that at some point he will be right. I mean, how cool is that? Like, just commit, yeah. to, commit to an answer. I think um, for me, I think, Right now, I'm still more concerned in terms of I think the the inflation challenge is is still undergoing. As Nick said, it it's gone up. I think you know recession becomes depression becomes maybe something where if they don't keep that under control, like I I think so. In terms of the context of what they're saying, I'm still more concerned in terms of what's happening in inflation. Uh, because everything else I still think is a consequence of how they they deal with that challenge. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, we don't need to go full Weimar Republic here in terms of inflation that absolutely has to be kept under control. The interesting, so there, there was another part of the video, so we're not going to, you know, we're sort of out of time here and and not, you know, we get, we'll put a cap on this, but, you know, they go on to say the market hasn't priced in soft recession the regional banking crisis is not over. And the point that I absolutely agree with, that uh, it was the second clip that I had, um, was that consumer credit exposure is way too high. And that is that to me is like if you look at the 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 the, the credit to um to, to cash sort of ratios for the average person, it's really, really bad. Um Clay, so, I've yeah. given you this stat three or four times so far. Real earnings in the US has yep. declined 
has been negative for 24 months in a row. Right. So that's why you see consumer credit going up at the same time that credit card interest has gone from, let's call it 15% up to 22. 22. Yeah. Okay. So, so are we going to have a recession? Are we not going to have a recession is the wrong discussion. There's going to be a lot of pain. The only question is what's the government going to do to try and mitigate it, right? And whether it's the consumer, whether it's commercial real estate, whether it's any other segment that, you know, the banking sector, there, there are there are a lot of brush fires um, that that are burning right now. And I, I, I'd hate to be in their position because you can't stop them all. Yep. Um, and, and they're certainly aware of them because the data has been very clear. It's not like I'm not looking at something that isn't publicly available. Um, so I kind of I can't agree with Mark too. If they're telling you there's going to be a mild recession, run for your fucking life. Because these guys never tell you the true extent of the chaos. Remember when inflation was transitory? It was. Remember that one? Yeah. Do you think they didn't know that inflation was about to get out of, out of control? So, you know, very, very salient of, of, of Mark to kind of just jump in on that without looking at any anything else. Yeah. yeah. What are the what is the track record of these guys when they tell you something is a three out of ten? It's probably a nine out of ten. Um, yeah. So anyway, that's the base case for most of the professional traders that I that that I talk to, um, and and it's not a time to be making bold bets. Um, you know, Mr. Harvey aside. Yeah, yeah. So I, I dropped the video in here, guys. If you want to watch it, it's actually I think it's worth the seven minutes. An interesting discussion on on the like we we're we're going to end here. But on the back half of the video, there's an interesting point made, and he said, "What would what what would uh, what would make your your like your case invalid?" And um, Chris Harvey's response was basically, "If the Supreme Court comes out and relieves student loan debt uh, in a very very high magnitude, that is like a stem that, that's like an economic stimulus that could you know effectively reverse some of the." Uh, some of our takes on on how bad the S and P is going to get. I I don't have enough information to draw the connection there, but that's what the dude says in the last one minute of the video. Uh, and we saw a six billion dollar approval from the Supreme Court yesterday to to forgive student loans. So I will need to dig into that further to see if you know, what what's his thinking, rationale, mindset, and correlation. But that's something I found interesting from the video. So give it a watch. We dropped it in there. Um, you know, I I hope that. You guys are wrong. I hope that the Fed's predictions in in the uh, FOMC minutes uh, are are not just academic, you know, um, you know, rhetoric, and that they've actually think that the measures of which they've taken this year uh, will reel things in, and 2024 could be coupled with the Bitcoin having, and that we don't lose the momentum we've seen in the Bitcoin market right now. Obviously, too many factors in play, too many balls in the air to make that call. But uh, you know, protect yourself. If you feel like you're up 50% on something, take profits, like be, you know, have a strategy. We say it all the time. Um, and so gentlemen, it has been a fantastic hour and 45 minutes with you all. You bring deep insights. You always come prepared. I thank you very much for that. Uh, Nick, throw another dart at, uh, at your board over there, buddy. Um, we got Gensler testifying on Tuesday and we're going to, we're going to break that down on the daily show. Mark, I'd love for you to join us on that one, man, just cause it's a, a Gensler testimony. I think that'd be a lot of fun. Um, <laughs> If you're watching this, hit the like button. Shout out to the Block Bites community. Do me a favor. Tell one friend about this show. Tell one friend about Block Bites. Let's help 
grow this and grow crypto together. Uh, we appreciate all of you. Time is the one resource or, or thing that you don't ever get back. And when you spend it with us, I can't thank you enough. And so uh, with that, have an awesome Friday. Have a great weekend. Keep tuning in to Block Bites. We will keep bringing you as much info as we can, as much good info, uh, and we will share the alpha. And everyone have a wonderful weekend. And with that, we'll see you next Friday.